welcome to Sitcom Geeks. I'm James Carey. And I'm Dave Cohen. Yes, you certainly are. And we have somebody else with us in the conversation, a stand-up comedian and podcaster of considerable note. Please welcome Stuart Goldsmith. Hello, Stu. Hello. Thank you for having me. And thank you because a podcaster of considerable note is exactly what I am, <laughs> as, well, as well as the other things I do. But in the realm of podcasting, I think a podcaster of considerable note giveth and taketh away. <laughs> I'm, right. not, I'm, well, by, I'm by no means award winning. Uh, well, I, I am of note. <laughs> or certainly of note, you've done 300 an episode, 380 episodes of The yes. Comedian's Comedian. Yeah. I remember it starting. I remember uh, listening to an episode with Liam Malone and another one with Dan Evans, who I was with the other day, actually, uh, uh, all those years ago. Um, I mean, it's probably only five years ago, but it probably seemed longer. It's 10. It's 10, ten years. No. The podcast oh, is it? for 10 years in March, yeah. which baffles wow. and astounds me. Yeah. Because yeah. okay. I, rem- yeah, I remember, I think probably the first time I met you was about five or six years ago, and um, James and I had already done about three episodes of Sitcom Geek, so I was thinking, all oh, right. I know all about this uh, uh, podcast <laughs> yeah. business, and yeah. then you know, here you are. I, I sort of feel slightly nervous having you know someone of your ten years, ten years podcasting. Thank I mean, you. People... Good. You're right to feel nervous, Dave. I'm an ogre. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get let's get straight into it then, because you've spoken to. I mean, you've had one or two comedians on a couple of times, as it were. But in general, you've spoken mm. to hundreds and hundreds of, of comedians. We're all about comedy writing primarily on this show, but also about. Um, about just having a career in the industry. What, what do you find yourself uh, continually coming back to thematically? People on their journey, lots of people kind of give up and lots of people continue and persevere and succeed. What, what are the kind of headlines that you've been picking up oh, in your... Great question. Thank you. That's a lovely comedian. open-ended question. So uh, the headlines are, I think, the, the, the headlines of the sort of structure of the show or the, the lifeline of the show is that I started off trying to find out how people wrote their jokes because I wanted to write better jokes. And <laughs> after a while, it became I became more interested, in, not to say that like, oh, I've covered that now, but I became more interested in how people cope. So there are, there are episodes which have things about stagecraft. There are episodes which have things about improvisation or clowning. There's a lot of joke writing. There's kind of famously a really good Gary Delay one where he almost it was an, it was a live episode and kind of as almost as a not an afterthought but a sort of a tangential journey to make a point about something else he just describes in maybe two sentences how to write a one-liner and it was like going mad going oh my god that's how that's how to do it oh that's how he does it I suppose yeah. the, the the headlines in terms of me and my development are that I and the advice I always give to people is that I for a long time did uh, an impression of what I thought a stand-up comedian was and I've realised now that that isn't the game. The game is to be as honestly yourself as possible. That's the game as it as, as I apprehend it, as it excites me. Mm. There's, there's a million different ways to do it. And that's another one of the headlines. There's a million ways to do it. There's no one way to do it. Um, everyone considers themselves the invisible person of comedy. Everyone wants more and considers themselves left out. And one of my favourite things to ask people is, guest X, you're really successful. Why aren't you more successful? That's the kind of stuff. I absolutely love getting into the viscera of it because you recognise that absolutely everybody, and this is a, a cliche example I use all the time, even Ricky Gervais wants to be like a leading man. There was a time, do you remember that he played that dentist? Was it the, the invention of lying uh, or something? Ghost, um, oh, there was another one where he played it's in Ghost World or something. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and, he, and he, it's a really good movie, actually. Yeah, for but, sure. Yeah. 
Harry. He's not a leading man, though, is he? Really? Well, no, but you remember he buffed up in that kind of I've been yeah. in Hollywood for a while and someone said I should buff up. Maybe I'll get in the MCU. Um, you know, but, but my point is everybody at every facet of whatever they're doing wants more. And I don't, you know, I'm not sort of looking down on Ricky for that at all um, from my extremely low horse. But um, uh, I think that everyone wants more. Everyone feels there are things they didn't get. Everyone is on a particular journey. So these days I am quite zen about it. Um, I did uh, Conan. I did a set on Conan a couple of years ago, at the end of 2019, and which is somehow already a couple of years ago. And I was asked <laughs> in an interview recently, "Is it you know was it really frustrating? Were you poised to break America and then the pandemic hit?" And I honestly had never thought of it like that. I just I think I've I've drunk so deeply from the cup of creativity, resilience, um, what it means to get through life as an artist. Um, that I have attained this sort of, not all the time, but I strive, I aspire to a sort of hovering Zen-like thing whereby I'm very fond of of continually rebroadcasting the idea that there are no reviews, there is no industry, it's you and your jokes that you're telling on stage right now, and that's the only thing that matters. So it's a sort of a calm version of Phil Kay. Why why aren't you more successful then? Oh God, I tell you what, loads of reasons. I've got a, a terrible memory, so there's loads of anecdotal stuff. People will be able to pull chat show anecdotes out of the air. Can't remember most of my life. Uh, on the other hand, I did have a lot of fun during my 30s, I'm told. Um, but uh, so I find that very difficult. It, it, one of my biggest problems is that of self-belief. Um, do you remember the bit in the Inception? Uh, in Inception is in the trailer where someone, can't remember who, is it Tom Hardy? Someone says, my dear, you shouldn't be afraid to dream a little bigger. And I've only ever dreamt for um, getting away with it. I never dreamt of superstardom. And I think you have to be, if you want to be a star, you have to kick down doors. Tom Stade said on, on an episode that I did with him years ago, he said, if you want to be a star, fucking act like one. And I don't act like one. I like, I like, I strive yeah. to be humble and, and benevolent, and I love, I love helping people with stuff. You don't, you don't throw your, throw your toast across the green room, room in a hissy fit, as, <laughs> no. as uh, I once witnessed. Uh, please no tell names. me, please tell me, you know, tell me afterwards, because I'd love to know. Because I love that for you, that's become shorthand of diva-like behaviour. Yeah. Hurling one's yeah. toast <laughs> across the green room. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's all, I mean, the LinkedIn world is all about, you know, dress for the job that you want rather than the job that you have, isn't it? Yes. So, well, I'm, I mean, the, the advice is the same. I, I think for me, but just it's funny you mentioned LinkedIn, I'm a hustler. Like, I love hustle. And I didn't realise that I love hustle because as, uh, and if there's any ComCom fans listening, take a drink now. I used to be a street performer. I bring that up from time to time because it's so profoundly important to me because it is the most entry level kind of performing. You literally stand in the street, improvise a thing and try and get people to stop and look at you. And there's nothing more raw than that, I don't think. Um, so that kind of what I think of as hustle, maybe hustle doesn't do it justice, but I love thinking about things and analysing them and trying to work out what's going on and, and then trying to work out what's really going on. And I think I've applied that to street performing and then I applied it briefly to acting, but was no, never more than capable. Didn't It wasn't, it, there wasn't hustle, you know, there wasn't like, hey, I can work out how to trick this uh, in, in acting. It just seemed a bit random for me as to whether people liked it or not. And then I've applied myself to that in comedy and then I've applied myself to that in podcasting and interviewing and I just really like thinking about thinking and talking about talking and those things are arguably not what you should spend all your time doing if you want to be if you're the world's most ambitious comedian and you want to be a huge star I don't really I want to be famous I just like the art I remember thinking that in my in my stand-up days or rather when my stand-up days finished uh, and and 
kind of like, like you, I'm, I'm a little bit analytical of my, of my colleagues. And uh, I always thought there was a kind of battle going on uh, between the intellect, um, what you're describing there, and, uh, and the instinct, which is, which, which is kind of the opposite of that. And that and is what you say, kind of getting out there on the street. Um, and I think uh, since I've become a writer, and I think this is uh, useful maybe for, you know, for people starting out, intellect and instinct, but also then the other thing that comes in when you don't have an audience is uh, self-judgment. And I think that's quite an interesting, that's a kind of third aspect of uh, when you want to be a writer. You can't, you know, you, you just... You can't just go out there and do it. Um, yes. And, and, yes, and wait for the response or lack of it. Well, so, that's um, that's for yeah. me. That's a that's a. I mean, <laughs> by, it's a really good way to open an interview with me is asking me to list my faults and why I'm not more successful because I <laughs> I got a lot of them I could talk all day, which we won't. But um, I think that one of the things I. Uh, one of the errors I make continually, and I understand it through therapy, but I've never been able to kind of relax that that grip, is that I'm very, very critical of myself. I'm not very kind to myself. And so that's part of the not dreaming big enough thing. I sort of feel like the most I deserve is to have sort of got away with it obliquely by by <laughs> guile, rather than feeling like, oh, this is some people out there, some comics are like, this is here for me. It's mine. And I feel like, oh, I'm so privileged to be part of this. It's here for everyone. That's a very different mindset. When you talk about instinct, my favourite thing to do on stage is freefall. I, I, I have some bits which are like, this is a big bit and it's A to B to C and it's clever and it's meaningful to me and I like it and it gets a big laugh. But I would almost always rather ditch that and flounder around and freefall on stage because that's the freedom mm. that I crave. That's the buzz I get most of all, really, is accidentally saying something brilliant and and that's like oh god that's better one moment of accidentally saying something brilliant in a free fall to me is more resonant and more satisfying and more connecty with whatever the thing is than doing brilliantly with the prepared stuff 10 times in a row so it's that idea of relaxing the intellect, which I like. I can't help. My mind's like a, a swarm of bees. I'm constantly noticing, 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 analysing, looking at things. I don't claim I'm good at it. It's just that's the state I'm in. And to to be able to switch that off and just go, wow, here I go in front of an audience. Wow, like base jumping, you know, that lets me just kind of be in the moment. And that's the thing I really crave. And that is less easy to monetize. And why would you? Yeah. I mean, it seems like that was a bit of an epiphany that kept coming back. Um, I don't know, for the first 150 episodes of your podcast, it always felt like, you know, as I say, you'd started out trying to figure out how do you write jokes um, and understanding people's process. And it just kept coming back again and again that people hit a bit of a brick wall. And the thing that made them move on to the next stage was discovering who they are on stage, which is a completely different thing to who you feel like you are in real life and your status or, you know, I know an actress who who is very low status and humble in real life, but she's funny whenever I write high status stuff for her because she's quite good at being a little bit stuck up uh, and pompous and know-it-all, even though she's nothing like that in real life. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess it's discovering your clown and all that kind of stuff. I'm always a bit frightened yes. about talking about clowning. Which yes, I've done, it, I've done enough clowning to know that I, I, I understand it on an intellectual level, which isn't good enough. Like, I yeah. can't do it very well at all. Like, I, I am too inhibited. I'm too worried yeah. about being judged badly by other people, brackets probably myself in the end, to be able to let go and achieve that clowny state of it's just you and me and here we are. I love yeah. that. I love to watch it and I cannot do it very well. 
But what what you just what you just described there was, and I think that's one of the reasons why my stand up career only went as far as it did. Was uh, I think um, the um, certainly from a personal level difference between you and, and me is um, I, I I used to get I, I used to try really hard to be that person who said right tonight I'm going to just do uh, ten minutes in I'm just going to open it up and, and I don't know what I'm going to talk about and let's see what happens and I, I, I always did struggle with that but subsequently as a writer I have kind of learnt what is I think the writing equivalent which is just to sit down and and say right I've got nothing in my head at this point I'm just gonna I'm just gonna write and I think I found out a lot more about myself and, and, and yes. how much further I can push things. Brilliant. Um, so that, that, that's a really... Uh, that's that, really, that's, that's really great to hear, but I only access that when I'm on stage. I have to hmm. trick myself. I have to kind of distract myself from all the buzzing to then blurt something out and suddenly everyone's laughing. And I'm like, oh God, I said a true thing. Listen back <laughs> to the recording. What was that true thing I said? Now, I, now I've identified that I think that true thing. How can I unpack that and get some stuff out of it? I, I can think of very few times when I have, I've managed to have an original, to, like to to circle a really original thought when sitting at a laptop or a or a or writing. It's like I I write now by walking around. I'll go for a long walk and listen back to me being good at a new material gig so that I remember I'm funny and I've learned that that's my that's my toolkit be moving be unable I mean I, I may or may not have ADD so I, I uh, I'm not diagnosed but there's a lot of the I tick a lot of the boxes and um, I think I find it excruciating to sit down and concentrate on a thing and so I put it off and put it off but if I get myself moving suddenly it unlocks all of the stuff and and I get, I get much closer to that that state of being on stage when something will just occur to me and I'll go, oh, oh yeah, I do, I do feel like that. Um, you have just been at the Edinburgh Festival. I have. Um, it is September during time of recording, so you have recently come from it. And this is obviously historically one of the great places to put your stuff out there, to find a genuine audience, even if it's only five, six, seven people for a show. They're not your friends. They don't. You, you will find out... Uh, a certain amount about what what you've got what what your voice is all that kind of stuff and I guess up until 2019 everyone was saying for the previous 25 years well this thing's just getting out of hand isn't it mm. I mean this is just it just can't go on like this you know they were saying this in 1997 when I was doing a show at the Gilded Balloon and they were saying it again in 2001 and every year thereafter going well obviously it can't just keep getting bigger and yeah. then it was it was four times bigger <laughs> in 2019 than it had been previously. And then COVID and then 2021 swung around. What was it like? And, you know, and we can talk a little bit about what it could be. But how was the Edinburgh Festival this year? It didn't feel like itself. I've gone. I, I think that was the 28th consecutive festival I've been to. Um, and it's I'm someone who I mean, the reason I'm sure part of the reason I'm here being the person talking about it on this show is that I'm like it's it's in my veins. I love it. It's a huge it's had a huge effect on my life. It's absolutely radically altered the course of my life. And I've performed every single one for 27 or 28 years or whatever it is. Um, I also, I think, have a sort of healthy amount of cynicism about uh, what it is and what it is for who. 
dating way back to street performing when people would go, these are the best shows in town. These are the best slots. You can make the biggest hats, the biggest amount of money of your life. So some people would go, this is therefore the Olympics and only the really good people should be here. And other people, of whom I am one, would say, I mean, I'd say it quite quietly, but I'd definitely vote in favour of this. Some people would say this is for everyone. The fact it's this incredible cornucopia is the point. And it should be, you know, some 16-year-old with a dream has just as much right to the two o'clock on Parliament Square as some guy who's been going 20 years and, uh, and doing the rest of it. So I think that, um, what was it like? It was like a never-to-be-repeated micro version of itself with everything that was good about that and everything that was bad about that. The good bits were that the, and this is, I'm stealing Garrett Millerick's point here, but he's absolutely right. The audiences seemed relaxed because they hadn't been constantly badgered with flyers all day. The high street was a nice place to be. There were little street shows going on here and there. There was a nice crowd. You weren't swamped. It wasn't like trucking between stages at Glastonbury in a kind of a, you know, a phalanx of thousands of people. Um, it was a pleasant environment on the street. And that is bittersweet because it will never be like that again. Hopefully, end of COVID and further variants and everything notwithstanding, it will go back to some semblance of normal next year. So coming back to this year, the audiences were happy and relaxed. Everybody, no one was there for their career. None of the acts were there for their career, apart from a person who I'll get to in a moment. Oh, not a person, but a tranche, a, a, tr a type of comic, which I'll get to in a moment. And it's no bad thing. But the, the bigger acts... I mean, what bigger acts were there? Jason Byrne, I gigged with up there. He was doing a great big, he was doing the, the Gilded Balloon car park venue, which wasn't called car park. It was called something cleverer than that. Do you guys know? I can't remember. Is it called stack or something? It was called a word that connotes car park without calling it car park, like overflow. I don't remember what it was. <laughs> but So Jason Byrne was probably the biggest act in town, I guess. Um, there were, like Daniel Sloss, of course, was there, but I think he was out of town. Um so no one was really there for their career. People were there because they love the festival. And that's always been part of my thing. I mean, I, we talked earlier on about the, the, uh, the sort of footnotes as to my own career success. And I do have a tendency on podcasts to really treat myself as if I'm a piece of shit, but I'm, I'm pretty successful. <laughs> but one of the reasons I'm not more successful is that a lot of people went to Edinburgh in their first couple of years as a comic and thought, this is hell. Josh Whittacombe, this is hell. How can I make sure I never have to come back here? Bounce, bounce, bounce TV. I went to Edinburgh and went, how can I make sure this is heaven? How can I make sure I come here every year for the rest of my life? So it was those people who were there this year. Every show was a work in progress. There was press, but the press was invisible. You couldn't, no one guaranteed their bit. I think people were sort of right upbeat, pleasant reviews after the fact, for the most part. No one was chasing press, as far as I'm aware. And so it became a bit like the Machankleth Festival, which is the best festival in comedy, which is a boutique festival that Henry Whittacombe organises in, uh, in the ancient capital of Wales. And the great thing about that festival is every act does their one show once, but for the, for the main. Um, and there's no press. Press are actively discouraged, disallowed and, and chased roundly out of town. And so there's no PR. There's no management. There's just comedians doing comedy and punters enjoying it. It's wonderful. It felt like that at Edinburgh this year. It, it felt mm. like this is just a place. This is how it should be. This is a bunch of people enjoying, trying out ideas, and the vibe was wonderful. So that's how wow. it was this year. I mentioned ah. I can keep I can keep going, or you can ask me questions. Keep going, no, keep going. <laughs> okay. You got one more thing. So I mentioned um, I mentioned a particular tranche of comedians. I said no one was there for their career. There were some very shrewd newer comics. Um, who went there, who gambled on it. And I'm talking specifically about my friend Ollie Horn, uh, who's a very capable young comic. 
And uh, I say that because I enjoy patronising him. And, and he'll take issue with me saying that and mention me. He's a very capable young comic. Um, and he is he's a really interesting and funny guy. What he did was he gambled on no one buying billboards. So he bought billboards for his free friend show, which was in, I believe, the Counting House Ballroom. So whatever that is, 100 and something seaters. He sold out the run, had these huge billboards all over town and put huge billboards, which aren't no, no, no huger than the than the normal billboards. You know, a, oh, I don't know what, what the numbers are, but the ones that you get along the railings that are the biggest railing ones. And he he went all in. He got a ton of those all over the place and occupied this incredibly valuable real estate from the perspective of the people of Edinburgh. And I'm telling him he's got to do a show next year called Me Again or That Guy. Remember me? Because he had that one year to go, this is my face. Stars are all over my poster. I'm the one guy in town with a billboard. There were a few others, but his was the one you would see and you would see everywhere. I remember Martin Moore, Martin uh, Big Pig formerly, saying something on Facebook going, this guy, Ollie Horn's having a great year. I've never met him. I've not seen his act, but he's smashing it. You know what I mean? And that's what you want. That's that's the kind of, that's that crazy blow on your dice in the casino thing that everyone yeah. wants from the Edinburgh Festival. Gambled. Gambled, yeah, exactly. Gambled and won. And and he absolutely deserves it. And whether, I'm sure, I'm sure he's smart enough to, to capitalise on it. So that was really interesting because the Free Fringe was doing great business. And the Free Fringe, I think even this year, possibly for COVID reasons, there was a, there seemed to be, and I'm not educated in this, there seemed to be a bit of a pivot whereby it was like, it's free fringe, but you can buy a ticket online for three quid or five quid. The secret, and, and you could slash turn up for free. That's what the Monkey Barrel was doing as well. And I was very proud to be part of the Monkey Barrel. Brilliant, brilliant venues, brilliant roster of acts. It's just a, like, it's one of the, the Monkey Barrel is one of those ones where you look on the website, see who else is on there and everyone there, you're like, God, I want to see them. So that was that was fabulous. But from a from a sort of a, an, an, a commercial analysis point of view, the smart, possibly never to be repeated move was to do free fringe, absolutely massively sell out. Um, and the reason that that was, is a, I think I'm getting to a point, which is that the biggest challenge this year was that there was no centralised place to find out what was on. Now, the last thing I expected to be doing would be in September doing a podcast where I go, hey, guys, edfringe.com is pretty important, as it turns out. But something is important about there being one website that you can go to as a punter and find out what is on now and next. Because this time I missed loads of things because it would be 10 to 8 and I'd normally I'd run a rabbit around, I see 60 shows a month. Um, you'd go, what, what's on next? What are you going to do? You're going to look at 20 different websites, all with various different interfaces, different levels, all that one's crashed, that one. Where's the now and next bit? I don't know. You end up not going to see something. You end up wow, not was seeing there something. No, was there no fringe programme? There was a fringe programme, but no one was in it because they, oh. they had absurdly high prices and everyone was like, oh, this is gouging. And I'm not commenting either way on whether I think that's sure. gouging. But As there was I, no appetite to pay the fees. There was no appetite to pay the fees. And mm. I don't think there should be a printed guide ever again. I think there should be a website and an app because that's what everyone uses now. And it's insane to trash all those trees, right? It's, it's mad. <laughs> I... I am sure, I'm 100% sure, there will be a printed guide again. In my nascent understanding of how these things work, you're the fringe guide. You want to knock out a printed guide and knock out a million copies because the real estate on the back of that is your advert for Bank of Scotland and they pay you however much they pay you. And then everyone who's in the guide is paying you to be in the guide and paying for adverts in the guide. It's an incredible money spinner and it will probably never go away. But all you need is an app. All you need is an app and a website. But the problem with that is... And I've, I've thought this through to a certain extent. I think if someone came along and did a, 
a, a competitor app, and I'm pretty sure there was one, iFringe. I think it was called iFringe in the last couple of years. In order to make everyone, in order for that for that competitor app to work, whatever it's called, everyone would need to have it. So they'd need to promote it and that would cost money and they'd make the money by putting adverts on it. And then it turns into a printed guide again. So I don't know what the solution is, but well, it I'm, is necessary that there is a centralised place to find out what the shows are because otherwise it's very difficult. I think you're pointing that, that, that the contradiction is coming through very clearly there. I mean, I, I know from because I was trying to put a show together uh, for this Edinburgh, which I failed to do, which was a, a kind of hybrid, trying to do a hybrid of a, an online show and something that might involve um, being in Edinburgh. And I, I was so I was talking a lot to people at the Fringe over July and working out kind of that, uh, three weeks into July that this was not feasible. And I think they were having like a thousand conversations like that every day. And so that's probably, you know, that, that's what happened. But, but actually what you're talking about sounds a bit like how the Free Fringe first came about. Which, which was this kind of, you know, enough of this bloody uh, magazine that, that you have to pay for to be in. You know, we're, we're just, um, you, you don't know about, you know, you hear about us through word of mouth. Maybe there might be a crappy piece of A4 uh, somewhere with a few of us on. But that's, so in a sense, it's almost like, you know, the, the, the free fringe reinvented what the fringe was yes. in the 1990s. And maybe this is kind of reinventing as well. And so, you know, yes, there'll always be the big sellout uh, shows. There'll always be the big billboards. You know, there'll always be the Avalons and whoever who, you know, who it's 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 their big, you know, it's the conference. It's conference season for TV as well. Mm -hmm. So there will always be that. But then, you know, and again, this is a particularly relevant to our, our listeners. You know, there's always going to be a way that if you're new and you can't afford to, to go to Edinburgh in the usual way, you know, there will be a, there will be a way, and maybe this is like a new version of the Free Fringe. Perhaps I think what the Free Fringe certainly had going for them this year was that they had the Wee Blue Book. So that was, if you walk down the street, you get a copy of the, and I'm talking about the PBH Free Fringe here. Um, you would get the Wee Blue Book, which is the the uh, their their mini fringe guide. So if everyone's flying it, as is their responsibility under the guidelines, then um, then everyone then that did the job of edfringe.com. Now, plenty of shows were on edfringe.com, lots of theatre at the Pleasance or that that kind of stuff, but very very few of the regular stand-ups you'd expect to see there were there. So one of the reasons that the Free Fringe did great was just because they were managing to successfully broadcast mm. what was on where and, and when. So, yes, I, I absolutely agree with you that things turn into other things. It's all bundling and unbundling, isn't it? It's like TV channels. You, are, you don't just want your TV channels. You want Netflix and Prime and Hulu and Disney and everything else. And before too long, I would say in the next 10 years, you will get an account that plugs them all together and they'll bundle and then they'll unbundle. And that's what I, I think of, I'm always referring to this, the end of the episode of South Park that's called Something Walmart This Way Comes. They All the people go to Walmart, they hate it. At the end of the, because there's a long shot, which is very unusual for South Park. There's a long shot, you see Walmart, all the people run in, they burn it down. There's one little shop instead. All the people go to the shop, it grows into Walmart, and then they all burn it down again. And that's what happens every year at the Edinburgh Festival. One of the uh, more challenging aspects of the Free Fringe is the fact that now literally anybody can go up and do a show there I approve of that, but it is interesting watching how that changes the 
the dynamic of it whereby some people go to see hour-long shows by someone who hasn't got five minutes to rub together and are maybe put off the free fringe i've seen no Mm. data on that but it's got to happen there is some stuff out there where you go is this good i've no idea oh this has put me off so Mm. uh it is it it can something be over democratized i don't know i think it should be there for everyone but that's part of the the it getting bigger and bigger and bigger every year not only are we creating comedians faster than we're getting rid of them, but we're, and I say we, I have taken, I, I was about to say I take no part in that, but I do, my podcast, I, I, I help nudge people into doing stand-up. And again, it is a good thing. I don't know what the, what the outcome is, and I don't know what the outcome is regarding Edinburgh and what the relationship is between, there are perfectly good free fringe acts who are, or really good free fringe acts, and there's a sort of crossover. If you look at someone fascinating, someone like Paul Curry, Paul Curry, absolutely brilliant act. You can't go and see a Paul Curry show without having your hair blown backwards. Have you guys ever seen? No, um, not come across him. Okay, no. so he's. Uh, I described him in the episode I did with him. He's something like a sweaty bearded turbo clown, right? He wears <laughs> he wears boots. He wears a white jumpsuit, and I've seen him for years pushing his little granny shopping trolley around Edinburgh, flyering people by hand and building brilliant word of mouth and making real connections with people, and then giving them this crazy. It's like Fuerza a Bruta does stand up you know it's like just one of those huge kind of explosive shows and he's crowd surfing and he's got a little version of him on a stick and he's flying it over the audience you know just mad stuff and um really really funny guaranteed a good time and he was doing the hive and he did the whole run at the hive and he was the first person to put his show on at the hive and he wasn't as part of a free fringe he just has a personal relationship with the hive rang them up i guess and said i'm gonna come and do this he was the only thing on there and selling out every night i couldn't get in so individuals like that can go up and do that and do amazing things. And then you go, well, what is the, what's the crossover? Do free fringe people jump to TV? Well, Liam Williams did, but then Liam Williams was kind of, uh, he is the sort of person that you'd put on TV anyway. I think what we can learn from that is, you know, because he's a genius, a brilliant, brilliant comic, brilliant writer, incredibly productive, very connected to the world of hip mm. young comedy, you know, gigging in, the sort of London venue, hip young comedy. I've never felt more my age. Um, but what I mean is, I don't think being on the free fringe precludes you from being part of the TV conversation. But it probably is a bit of a longer leap. You probably have to be that much better to, to be in that conversation. And do you sense that next year, let us just assume that this pandemic will abate and by, mm-hmm. fe- by January, February, everyone will say, oh, okay, I think we're back to normal. Mm-hmm. I mean, firstly, do you think that the performers and acts will return in in sort of 2018-19 numbers. But also in terms of what are good outcomes for Edinburgh in terms of if you're a writer, writer, performer, you know, what does it look like? Because I think sometimes some people think they're going to turn up and win what used to be called the Perrier Award um, and be discovered from nowhere. But actually it's it's usually a three to five year campaign that you're really looking for, isn't it? How does it, you know what I mean? It's just like, yeah. just do something and get the feel. I mean, that's what I would normally say is just do something. If you've never done anything before, do something, experience it, meet other people who are doing stuff and go back next year, knowing the mistakes you've made with a better show that might get a bit of attention 
and you might make some more friendships. So by the time you go back a third time, you might actually have a good show yeah. as opposed to a sort of a chaotic... And you've got to do three you know, years to prove you're serious. You've got to do three years yeah. before anyone will come and see you because there are so many chances that the people who are up there doing the reviews, who also have no time and no money and are, you know, the reviewers are very badly paid. They've got a whole, you know, there's, there's their side of it as well. So you've got to go up a few, unless you are one of the three to five year sustained campaign agency advice earlier on making clever moves production wise the likes of which have taken me years to glean a career's worth to glean one or two little tips um but there are some people who know that stuff and can just sit you down and go you show promise do you want the chat and they give you the chat there are those people but unless you feel like you're those people and if you're listening to this i would hazard a guess that very few of you are those people then you've got to go up for a bunch of years in a row just to prove you're serious just so, mm. just so that we know you're not doing some mad passion pro- project because you got made redundant. I've always wanted to take a show to Edinburgh. Sure you have. Chances are it isn't very good and I've got a million shows to see, so I'm not coming. But if you go three years in a row and one of my mates tells me, you should check this person out, then I'll go. Mm. Maybe. Yeah. Then, then you'll go in the pile of people who are like, I must get round to them. And if you, if you sit like, I have no financial stake in going to see shows. I just like them. If you think of... So there's relatively little pressure on me. But if you think of someone who is a professional reviewer, a professional monarch maker of uh, of comedy, then their, their various wallets of, I've never heard of this person, I've been told this person is good, multiple people have told me this person is good, multiple people and agents and TV producers are talking about this person, I, should, I suppose I'd better go and see one of the 12 of them. Do you mean that's that's the reality? So if you're going up there with nothing and no backing, it's not impossible that you'll, you know, that you'll roll five, uh, you'll roll a six six times in a row. It's possible, but you'll only find out after the fact. It's like that. It's like that lovely XKCD comic strip whereby someone someone's giving an inspirational talk, and this is a four panel strip online somewhere, and they say, um, "Hey, I used to, I used to uh, try and win the lottery." And I just never won the lottery. No matter how many tickets I bought, I never won the lottery. And then I bought a ticket and I won the lottery. So never give up on your dreams. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's just that, sure. And it just illustrates really beautifully how we only see success from the point of view of the successful yeah. people. And it's easy to draw a narrative line backwards and go, oh, I should have done all those things. But the yeah. reality is, it's just a lot of random. There's <laughs> a lot of random yeah. stuff in it. Yeah, yeah. That's right. It's funny that you should mention the XKCD. I literally mentioned that cartoon strip Um in a previous very recent episode the lottery about one. the someone no no okay. someone's wrong on the internet yes you of, know, course, that, of course this is yes. basically like 20 years old and it's it's never been truer yes um i mean talk about a bit of a bit of modern day prophecy yes but so, yeah so in terms of what you mentioned earlier the chat like yeah. if you've got something you're given the chat what, what what do you mean by the chat what who's telling what who and what are they sort of saying well i don't know because i've never had the chat but <laughs> I know that, for example, one of the things, and I'm purely talking for stand-up here, I don't know much about sitcom writing. Mm. Um, And if you remember the word excruciating from earlier on, (laughs) like the idea of sitting down and committing to a thing, I'm in awe of anyone that can do that. Um, From a stand-up perspective, there is one of the chats, one of the the types of chat you hear about is with um, Addison Cresswell, no longer with us, uh, who used to run off the curb. And there would be, you would hear people say, oh, what you do is you go in, and he gives you a really, like, he doesn't look up from his computer. This is a second-hand anecdote. I don't really have the right to tell this, but it's like, it's a chat that's like, do you want to make a million pound? Do you want to make a million pound? Yes, put it there. And then you get the backing of a big organisation. And what Curb do, and of course they're smart to do this, you're a promising new act. They put you on tour for 
years sometimes doing tour support for promising acts with a bit of TV profile. So you get practiced at playing thousand seater rooms. And so by the time Apollo comes around, which they, I don't know what the relationship is there, but do they make it? Do they have some yeah. connections? Uh, it's made by them. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So, um, so you, you're, you're kind of in the, you're in the slipstream. You're like, right, here we go. This is the system. So that's a version of the chat, I guess. Or mm. another way I might mean it is that there's a brilliant producer who, oh, she's an agent now, Bree Kirby. Um, she used to work with Chambers Management and, and I'm, I'm represented by them. And Breed was there and Breed just kind of crackles with energy. She just gets things done. And I believe she's an agent now on her own. I think she looks after Jordan Brooks and Josie Long and, and, and other brilliant people, I'm sure. And the thing about Breed is every conversation I had with Breed, she would just say something that I'd go, God, that's clever. Do you know what I mean? She, she would just go, well, if you're going to pull out of this gig, let's make sure that before you do it, but don't make the call yet. Let's just check whether X, Y, Z first. And you go, oh, God, I never thought of doing that. Just little tiny things like that. Or she go, well, if you're going to Edinburgh, instead mm. of even just something like if you're thinking of doing X, Y, Z, why don't you ask someone who's done it and ask someone who's done it badly and ask someone who you think has done it well and ask them what mistakes they've made. And me being some dunce comedian would go, oh, you can ask people. Didn't even know. Do you know what I mean? So it's versions of that. And what I mean by the chat is simply that when someone has been uh, a manager for as long as Hannah Chambers, who's ultimately my, my manager and incredible at her job, she's been having versions of that chat and giving versions of that chat and gleaning versions of that chat with people for 20 plus years. So if you are lucky enough as a newer act to get scooped up by someone who knows how it all works, even if it's just their version of how it all works for you to interpret and take what bits you like, imagine being that person compared to being someone who doesn't get given that support early doors. And imagine the acceleration, the velocity in a comedy career when you go, should I do this? I'm not sure. And someone goes, definitely don't do that. And you go, brilliant. Definitely do this instead. Fantastic. And you get more opportunities sooner and you go, mm. well, it's the singularity, right? Whereas it's very easy to just turn up and gig and crunch numbers and do them, do the motorway drives and try and get from a 10 to a 15 there and all of those things, which make perfect sense. They just, they just end up happening in different the yeah. spectrum they have, their own the, the rain, they have their own yeah the yeah. heimdall's rainbow bridge right some people are on yellow and some people are on blue and some people are on ultraviolet and they you know and, yeah. and you just don't even in the early days you don't even know that that's how it is i had a, i did have a version of that chat actually um I, with, with addison in fact but it, it came pretty much towards the end of my career I was, and i was <laughs> have you given up all hope of making a million pounds yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but it, it was it was the other Addison chat, which was uh, and, and the, the, um, he he often he always used to talk about family. Um, he'd always talk about off the curb uh, as his his family, um, which which they were, and it was uh, that that it was his life. Um, but in the one occasion where I was with off the curb, and it was I say it was towards the end, and it, and we knew each other well enough, so it wasn't like he was uh, talking to a to a newbie. But the way he made me feel part of that family it was a, a, a coming as it did like seven or eight years into my career when I was already thinking oh this this isn't right for me and I just thought oh god this is just maybe maybe this is something I mean it was too late by then but but it, it really I'd never had that feeling of somebody you know important yes. Uh, literally, it was it was a phone call, but it was you know metaphorical arm around the shoulder, yeah. and it really was you know this, you, 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 you're one of us mm. now, Dave. And this, it was just this career, absolutely this career 
for, for, again for a stand-up, probably for for writers as well, for sitcom writers as well. It's a confidence game. It is about confidence. It is so easy. Have you ever been snowboarding? You know, you're snowboarding and you have a speed wobble. You think, God, I'm doing this quite well. Oh, Jesus. And then you fall off. <laughs> it's like that with stand-up comedy because you're, you're, it is all about confidence. Think of the biggest act in the world doing the biggest stage. You know, Jack Whitehall, you know, doing mm. Wembley Arena. It's just a bloke. It's just a bloke with some thoughts that he's warmed mm. up at Top Secret. And he's and he's got it all ready, and he's got these jokes, and you walk out, and and imagine if just before walking out, whichever comic it was, were to go, God, I don't know if I could do this. You wouldn't be able to. It's 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 not snowboarding. It's Douglas Adams flying school in um in uh restaurants at the end of the universe. You know the way to fly is you forget that you don't know how to fly, and so you jump <laughs> off something. You suddenly yeah. find yourself flying. Someone distracts you just before you fall, and then you're flying. And yeah. the second you think I can't be doing this, you're right. And you crash yeah. to the ground. That's what stand-up comedy is like. So to have an organisation or a mentor or a trusted friend or a team, yeah. even if it's like a cohort of people who started at the same time of you and you all profoundly believe in each other, that is, that's another version of the chat. That's just like, this is what Will Ferrell said, it's lonely, cold and vicious. I don't know that I totally agree with that, but it certainly can be and it certainly can feel like that. So mm. to have people around you, and again, that's one of the joys of the Edinburgh Festival, it's like, it's like college. It's like going back to college. And, you know, we're not the weirdos anymore. We're the normal people. All of us are at Edinburgh together and everyone you talk to, you can talk to about their show and all the rest of it. Um, and you, I mean, that's a separate thing. You have to make sure that you don't become the Ents officer staying on at college <laughs> until way past your welcome. And I think probably round about now, I should maybe take 10 years off and go back as a professor <laughs> rather than just continually being in the background. Someone who does it in a very classy way is Tim Vine, who's often found playing darts in the Pleasance bar. And you go, there is a class act who like doesn't yeah. look like he's hanging on at all. He's here for what he's here for. He's played darts in the background. Brilliant. Um, so... The if you have a, a cohort or a mentor or a manager or enough self-belief that kick the doors down act like a star thing, mm. you're gonna need that because without that, it just can be very thin. It can be it can you mm. can feel spread very thin and like it could all go wrong. And then if you think it could all go wrong, maybe it will. I think just the, one of the overall themes that's emerging is the fact that I think lots of listeners may be thinking that a career is a sprint, that a script is the beginning of a sprint, and actually your career isn't a sprint it's not even a marathon it's it's a series of marathons isn't it it's doing the london marathon every single year and sort of in a way doing the edinburgh festival is a bit like that for some that's kind of their annual marathon it's having yeah. a new hour having a new show having a new idea but the aim of that you you can't really keep going unless you've got someone in your corner and so the base camp as it were so that that spec pilot script that you're writing or that Edinburgh show that you're doing, you're just trying to win somebody into your corner who might occasionally hand you a towel or grab your gum shield yeah. or throw a bit of water in your face and then just say, oh, you want to go that way and not this way. Or yeah. um, It's just a question of building up a bit of camaraderie or trust with someone who's a bit further down the line than you, isn't it, really? Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I think absolutely. And I think that idea of it's a marathon every year, and it's a marathon that we need. Like for me, the Edinburgh Festival makes sense of my year. It's like the school year. You start right, you take September off, you start writing a show in October and then you present it in August and then again and again and again. And so when we took the Edinburgh Festival away from all comics in 2020, loads of us went mad 
because there was no structure anymore. There's nothing to work towards. There's nothing, there's nothing to tick off. I've done that. Even though we continually panic and freak out, and God, isn't it awful and isn't it terrible? And then everyone in July does that. Oh, I've not done my revision. Oh, I think I'm going to have a terrible month. And then they win a thing or whatever, you know. Um, yeah. All of that stuff, frustrating as it often is and, and painful as elements of it can be, it gives us a shape. And I think I crave that structure and that, that's part of why I'm so addicted to it. Mm. You've alluded that. I just wanted to mention, uh, we haven't really uh, talked about, but what, what was clearly you know, like a deeply, deeply traumatic moment in the world of stand-up when COVID happened. And just suddenly, you know, lots of people that I knew and I'm sure that you knew, and I'm sure you as well, you know, you, were, you had a diary full of dates and, and money coming in and then suddenly nothing. And, mm. you know, if the, uh, what, what, I mean, how, how has it been for you and how do you think, you, you know a lot of people, how has it been for, for stand-ups generally in the last 18 months? I will try to be diplomatic because for me it's been fantastic and that is not fair and that's not representative of everyone. I think I was at the lower rung of ways to survive the pandemic either if you were TV famous or you had 100,000 followers on something or right down here, a podcast, then you had a means to keep going. My podcast makes enough money that I never needed to drive a van. I never needed to go, right, everything's on hold while I do this. And it bought me the time I needed to pivot. And I pivoted hard and fast and I invented loads of iterations of doing things online. And some of them I'm still doing now. And uh, I had enough, like I had a big folder of uh, things, I, projects and ideas to get round to. So I just started getting round to a lot of them. So I, I had a really good time. The good time that I had involved an enormous amount of work and disappearing into my cellar, the cellar I'm sitting in now, in which I've only painted the bit of the wall that you can see. Um, <laughs> and uh, my, I'm, I'm literally like nearly two years in, I'm sat at a desk which is made of two decking planks held together with brown parcel tape. Um, but... Uh, I lent on my wife loads. She was looking after our children, homeschooling them, while I went mad in the lab and kind of created some stuff. And even then, even while it was all working, I nearly, I just started, I didn't have a breakdown, but I I started to go, oh, this must be what it feels like when there's a breakdown on the horizon. And was able, again, very fortunately in a very privileged way, was able to afford getting back into therapy and, and sorting myself out. That's me. I did great. Thanks. I think... I think comedians in general had their income and their psychological crutches kicked out from underneath them. I think there was a raft of people who were at an income slightly greater than mine who were uh, no longer sole traders, but they were the director of their own limited companies, and those guys didn't get a size grant. That just wiped out a whole... It didn't wipe them out, but a lot of people were suddenly in trouble because I qualified yeah. for the first three size grants, and those were a life-saving buffer. And uh, lots of people I know didn't and were just tearing their hair out. And I think those in when, when you're, you know, if you're into an exercise that you can't do anymore and that's keeping you on the straight and narrow or you're gigging every night and that's keeping you mentally healthy and suddenly those things go. Not It's not just the lack of income. It's the community. The first time I was so lucky. because I live, That's another reason I was lucky. I live in Bristol. We have Mark Olver. He was constantly trying to make things happen in car parks, <laughs> making things happen in car parks. With Mark mm. Olver, um, just just putting a phenomenal amount of energy and effort into that used to mean something quite different five years ago, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, I think so. that's the one I was alluding to. Um, but uh, there were what is it? What's is Lakota? Lakota. I think I did the first gig back in the entire country because Lakota had put this huge outdoor circus tent, and then everyone started doing circus tent type gigs. Um, so, but 
the mo the the moment when I was like, oh my god, this is what I've missed, was chatting to Fern Brady and Alfie Brown in a green room and going, God, I'm in a green room again. So that that part of my life, the the connection, all the rest of it, you take that away from from people from comics, and it was it was incredibly difficult and difficult in a way that you could probably only articulate six months later. You didn't know why you were, your mind was falling apart. Not to mention the, the fact that maybe uh, you know COVID is on every surface, and well, I can't see my parents and all the rest of those things. But in terms of the comedy bit of it, lots of things were taken away from people. Some of them they realised, and some of them they didn't realise the value of them. So I think uh, some people had a really rough time of it for sure. Yeah, how do you think um, it's going to be for people? Let's say somebody who was kind of who's starting out a career, let's yeah. say two years ago, uh, and thinking, and I want to be a writer, I want to do comedy, and they thought, I want to, I want to write, uh, I might try a bit of stand up or improv or something. Mm -hmm. What do you think is the kind of uh, prospect for the next, say, the next six months, the next year? Yeah, I mean, even even people, I will answer that. Even people who who were further down the line than that, Olga Koch who has done, I guess she's done Mock the Week a few times. She's, you know, she's absolutely on the way. She quit her day job just before COVID. She finds it very risk averse, finally got to a stage where she could quit her day job and then COVID happened. If I think of someone like William Stone, who's kind of my, one of my favourite exciting new acts. Um, this is a brilliant, brilliant one-liner guy, a really imaginative joke writer. Um, and he was in that position where he's, I don't, I don't know what his, how full time he is or not. I guess he's full time, but he was in that. There must be a whole tranche of comics who were like, here we go. Oh God. You know, people who were about to debut in Edinburgh 2020. Oh, what, what, what happens now? What happens now? Can I get any momentum? Some people came out of it smiling. You know, Tanya Moore has done very well. Sakiza has done very well. People who maybe had lower profile and then opportunities came up and they were able to grab them or they functioned particularly well on online environments or they just got into it quick or they you know that moment that that sort of year-long smear whereby comics went god comedy won't work online and some of us went i think it will and then everyone gradually begrudgingly caught up with us or worked as a gardener you know it's, people got into it and and so opportunities were there opportunities were exploited and, and some people did well but yes my god a huge amount of people who were about to be really inspired and have the best Edinburgh, the first and best Edinburgh of their lives and connect with everyone didn't happen. One of my online projects was called The Infinite Sofa and it was a sort of a mad experiment in community and and it was like a chat show with the audience were in the show and the audience became very passionate about it and many of them now have tattoos uh, relating, to, <laughs> relating to things I said on a whim. Um, but they then they called themselves the Sofam, the family of the sofa, and there now exists a comedy night online and, and, and in real life as well called Sofam So Funny. So that was a bunch of people who came to it as listeners of my podcast in the main. Some of them were just discovered it in other ways, Twitch and what have you. Um, and they were comedy fans, and probably through watching me flail around over a hundred hours of live kind of comedy they went oh this, this doesn't look too hard and i'm very proud to continue that tradition of seeing someone do it badly and thinking, i could flail around yeah, i could flail around i mean i went through that process myself and um, so that has now given a useful nudge to a bunch of people who are now you know they they are part of that incredibly memorable and unusual thing of comics who started during the pandemic there are comics out there with 30 gigs under their belt who've never set foot on a stage and that's astonishing and brilliant and you know it's not i'm sure not all of that will translate brilliantly to walking out on stage of course it's, it's apples and oranges but maybe it's a way in 
so yeah let's hope good comes out of it as well yeah brilliant well there's loads of oh there's so much there to unpack for our listeners but i think we should probably uh land the plane uh get off the plane uh go and find our luggage um all that kind of stuff where, I mean, where, can you where even does all now? this airport terminology <laughs> no come idea from? <laughs> is yeah. this Wearing part of the format that i didn't realize yeah. <laughs> Yeah, going to be uh, some table tennis bats. Uh, I don't know. It's just talking to a stand-up comedian makes me think of of, of airline travel because obviously that's the thing they famously. <laughs> Very good. What's You're the deal wrong. with airline food? Yes. Hey, in well, the, uh... allow me before we wrap up. Um, allow me briefly to hijack the plane just to come back to this idea of what do we expect from from Edinburgh next year? Oh, please do. And and there are two things that I think. One is that you're quite right. I hadn't thought this until you said it, but I don't think that everyone will come back next year because some people are you know vulnerable in terms of their income some people have had to change jobs there, there will it won't be everyone but maybe the people who aren't there will be shored up by brand new people chomping at the bit because they've missed the last two my fear is it will just turn back into its old self because people will go there all of the old you know everyone who who did a work in progress this year will be like here we go and everyone who didn't will be like i don't want to miss out and every venue will be like we have to stamp our authority one of the things that was a real shame to see this year was the amount of um privatized outdoor space whereby loads of big venues attached to bars had kind of gone why don't we take over everything here and and uh, then it'll be it'll be this great hub. And I guess that's one of those things that the it's one of those like um, the way in which uh, corporations behave like psychopaths. You know, it's like, but if we we need to go there, because if we don't go there, we might lose the space or we might or the margins might shrink or something. And you go, well, yes, when you're a business, that makes sense. But when you're a sort of a human in the street, you're like, this is mad. It's just this sort of awful fake grass everywhere kind of pretend space that's been going on for years. It's one of as a former streetie, that's one of my particular bugbears bugbears about Edinburgh. The reality is, I think next year, it will just be more so. I think this year, everyone was like, quick, put a ring around everything, put Harris fencing around everything, because if we don't do it this year, then it'll take us five years to get back to the enormous footprint that we had last time. And I think in the same way, everyone will be going this year. As soon as someone says, it's going to happen, and uh, I think it probably will, everyone will go, this is our chance. Let's get back up there. And it will be all of the things that are glorious and awful about the Edinburgh Festival. It will be incredibly profuse and wonderful and carnivalesque. And uh, it will also be blaring and annoying and, uh, and painful and hearts will get broken left, right and centre. Well, Typical Edinburgh, really, by the sound. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that in a way, that's just really good, practical, sensible advice because it, it's wonderful, beautiful. I mean, I, I'm still recovering from that sort of almost abusive relationship with the Edinburgh Festival, which is you, you, you can't stay away and yet you keep getting smacked. Um, yes, well, yes that, that is true, but you need to be, I would suggest you be more zen about it. The industry yeah. doesn't exist. The reviews don't exist. What exists is you and the people you're in front of that night. And that is how to have a happy life and not have a, a codependent, abusive relationship with the festival. Don't expect anything from it. Just go up that, and, and be alive there. That is a perfect way on which to end. We are so grateful. How can people get hold of your podcast? Let's look for comedians, comedian. Yes, um, I, I, I always, I mean, I've said to people, how can we find your podcast? It's a ludicrous question. If you know where podcasts are, you yeah. go there and you find them and you type in comedians, comedian. Sorry, not to any slag other, you are. I didn't mean that. No, no, it's true. Well, yes. any, other, yes. any other sort of projects to mention? For sure. If people go to stuartgoldsmith.com, they can find out about all the different things I do. And if... Uh, 
people one of the one of these side hustles that is now one of my main things is i leverage the uh, the insights from the 380 plus comedians i've spoken to um to talk to businesses about how they can uh get new insights on resilience and i, I kind of um through looking at comedians so i, I speak to business and i sort of I really do it. Like, I think I probably was faking it till I make it and now I've made it. So if anyone yeah. is interested in that, if any of your listenership can get 60 people in a room or 2,000 people online or whatever and want to hear that, then they can find out more about that at stuartgoldsmith.com. Great. That's going back to the LinkedIn part of this uh, of this world that we all live in. As I've well, been hustling it? on LinkedIn. It's like Facebook, but it's full of CEOs. Great times. Yeah, yes, that's right. And much way fewer jokes, but also fewer opinions as well. So I think LinkedIn is sort of slightly happier as a place, but a little bit a little bit sad generally. <laughs> yeah, it? that's perfectly reasonable. Or an opportunity. You heard it. An opportunity. <laughs> oh, I've spoken like a true LinkedIner there. Anyway, um, thanks very much, uh, Stuart. Thanks very much for listening, everyone. Cheers, Dave. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Speak to you next time. Bye-bye. Bye.